Welcome to the PA Books Podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. We hope you enjoy this podcast. week on PA Books, Judith Good, editor of The Italian Legacy in Philadelphia. Our guest today is Judith Good, and she is the author, editor of this book, The Italian Legacy in Philadelphia. Uh, Judith Good, if someone buys this book, what do they get? I, well, what they get is a very comprehensive book that tells about Italian, Italians and Italian-American connections to Italy, and it talks about several periods of Italian experience in Philadelphia in which the Italian community was very different, in which Philadelphia was very different. Talks about the elites in Philadelphia. It talks about the regular folk in Philadelphia. It talks about big things like what was happening in the world, and it and it talks about small objects, individual people who made major contributions. So it touches a lot of scales and a lot of time frames, and it's very comprehensive. Now, if you would walk around Philadelphia today, what would you see that would show Italian influence? Well, one of the things you'd see is colonial era influence around the around Independence Hall, in which the Palladian style was used for public buildings. And if you went out to the suburbs, or what were then the summer homes of the growing wealth-accumulating Philadelphias, you would see Palladian houses throughout all of the areas of um, the new wealthy residents. So the first take is the Palladian influence on Philadelphia. What is that? What does Palladian mean? Palladian is the influence of a major um, a Renaissance uh, designer who took from early classical history the notions of balance in architecture and and saw morality in the balance of architecture. And he became a major fad in England. And then through the colonies and the early republics adoption of a lot of European classical styles and designs, he became very popular here in the founder's city. And you see also that, that um, uh, so, so the most marked uh, physical th thing is the Palladian architecture in the civic public spaces near the Delaware. But then later on, you begin to see the 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 you go you begin to see all kinds of of architecture landscape styles being from Italy being adopted in the developing and expanding city through the 19th century. And finally, you see 
the contemporary period where Italy has become practically embedded in many of the major icons of the city, like its food, both its popular food and its class, high-class upscale food, and the rocky image of Philadelphia, the sandwiches, the lowly sandwiches that have become the symbol of Philadelphia all over the world, where you find cheesesteak restaurants in South America, in Europe, all over the world as representing Philadelphia. So from the early colonial period to the contemporary globalized city, Philadelphia culture, some of it actually brought here by contemporary Philadelphia businessmen who are still connecting with the city, are, are, are very much part of the tourist city that Philadelphia has become. Now, you mentioned the colonial era. If Would you have found Italians in Philadelphia during the colonial era or early independence? Ah, not, a, not an Italian community. Interestingly enough, the educated Italians who came were diplomats, like Garibaldi's brother, who was sent by the Piedmont um, polity to represent the Piedmont in Philadelphia. Uh, you would find traders, like the gentleman who, with whom Jefferson lived dur during the period of the drafting of the Constitution. You would find individuals, but many of them married Americans and stayed. Others went back to Italy and only stayed for a short time. So what Richard Giuliani, the early historian of Philadelphia, says is there is no real community with institutions and settlements until the 1860s, when people from Genoa in northern Italy, a trading port, start immigrating to Philadelphia, and then are succeeded by a second wave from the south. It's very important to understand that the book is focused on bridges, connections, interaction, people and to people, institution to institution, objects that were brought from Italy to Philadelphia, and design imprinted in the landscapes of Philadelphia. So we deal with all kinds of scales of objects and all kinds of different people from the elites in the early period to the populations that arrive in 1860 and then 1880 to 1920. When the immigrants came here, did they, did they meet with a lot of prejudice for either them being Italian or being Catholic? The 18, in 1860, the Genoan Italians from Liguria settled here and settled around what is now the Italian market. But the next big wave in 1880 to 1920 brought people mostly from the South, from the Mezzogiorno, from agricultural backgrounds and professional backgrounds from the Mezzogiorno. So people came from all walks of life. And those populations were a relatively enclaved community within South Philadelphia. They shared 
the space with people, the great migration African-Americans, with the Irish who had settled there before as immigrants, with the Eastern Europeans and Jewish immigrants, so that space was shared. But the 1860 formation of a community of, from Genoa meant that the new immigrants from the South settled within those spaces. And so you have a very complex settlement. And within that settlement, there wasn't as much conflict between Italians and others as there were between um, Irish and African Americans. So there wasn't discrimination, and people kept rather to themselves. The Italian market itself was managed by a board that included all the groups. It wasn't only Italian-American. But over time, for various reasons, it became more and more Italian-American. And from the point of view of the Italian-American community, it was very important as a community provisioning area and as a, a site for upward mobility. As you know, many of the, the businesses in South Philadelphia have now reached 100, and they celebrate centenarians every year, restaurants and market stalls. Some of them have become national in orientation. Some of them have many branches. Some operate mail orders. So you have that space becoming very significant in the city. But nonetheless, it wasn't always Italian-American. In fact, it wasn't officially recognized as the Italian market until the—recently, when it became a tourist attraction. What was it called? It was called the Ninth Street Curbside Market. If you go there today, what do you see? You go there today, you see mostly new immigrants—well, <laughs> you see the Italians, who are still very present, still covered in the newspapers whenever they have special events. Um, the cannoli competitors are always having articles about themselves in their in the in the Inquirer about the way in which um, people are known to have um, to have patronized them and the way in which five generations have operated. Um, you can read the last ten years of the Inquirer's obituaries and find that Sarconi's, Esposito Meats, uh, Fonte's Kitchenware, which married Esposito's, you can find all of these populations still there operating at a broader scale. Of course, not all the businesses remain. The book covers a lot of what happened to the businesses through time and how policies and um, regulations allowed um, some of them made it too difficult for some of them to stay in business at a small scale. But nonetheless, you do see that. However, you also see huge numbers of the new immigrants, Asians who are on Washington Avenue, and Mexicans who own taquerias. Some Mexican bakeries make pizza dough, which they sell to pizzerias. Some 
uh, sous chefs and Italian restaurants are of Mexican restaurant workers um, lineage. And so you're getting a huge uh, fusion of um, interrelated Italians and non-Italians, which is one of the things that makes uh, us be able to advertise a multicultural, multi-ethnic you know, solidarity in the Italian community. So it's both gentrified and, and sharing space with a lot of non-Italians, and yet the Italian brands are still there. Is there still a, a big Italian population in South Philadelphia, or have they kind of been assimilated over the years? Well, that's, of course, true of a lot. Of, this is true of a lot of uh, groups who, after the war, after they had fought the war, it was a big moment when the turn-of-the-century immigrant mass, mass became assimilated because they'd fought in the war, unlike African Americans, for example, who were segregated out of certain parts of the military. Uh, but they had fought in the war, and they had become American in identity. They no longer were discriminated against, which they certainly had been before. I didn't mean to give the impression that they weren't discriminated against. But um, with this great opening up, um, there are a lot of there's a, a, a lot of assimilation. However, there were so many important institutions in South Philly that um, people who left, and the area they left for in the largest numbers was South Jersey, which had its own large Italian community, with the state being the largest, having the largest Italian population of any state, which certainly popular culture teaches us. Um, they. Uh, they moved to South Philly or they moved to northern suburbs, but in all cases, they could go back to their roots. And when people returned to the city after deindustrialization, which um, and suburbanization, which in which the government aided the development of suburbs and the highways and lured people to outside of the city, uh, you found that Italians moved all over the place, but remained when they had contacts tied to South Philly for holidays, for Sunday dinners, and so on. So they moved all over but remained tied. Now, that also brings up the fact that there were lots of other Italian clusters in the city. Not everybody lived in South Philly. There were industrial areas, like in Chestnut Hill, uh, where the elite housing was being built at the end of the 19th century. People from Friuli, which is near Trieste, were coming in as craftsmen and helping to build Chestnut Hill houses. People from uh, from Maida and Calabria were coming to Ambler to build Keysby and Madison, the asbestos factory, and all the homes for the elite there. So the role of Italian craftsmen in construction and decoration of elite homes was great. And it led to the far-flung nature of Italian sub-communities, some of them having their own nationality churches in which, um, in which masses were in Latin and the clergy 
tended to be Italian because the liturgy was different between the Irish-dominated Catholic Church and the Italian nationality parishes. During a mass migration when the Italians would come to Philadelphia, did they consider themselves to be Italian or did they consider themselves as Sicilian or Calabrian or Tyrolese? Exactly. When they first came, and until really World War II, there were separate communities. Now, one of the interesting things that really came home to me working on this book with all the wonderful collaborators who contributed was how new a nation-state in formation Italy was. And actually, I've, I've been teaching this for years. Italians didn't come from Italy. They came from uh, the, the different, uh, some, they, different polities, different the sub-states. Some of them were kingdoms with, with inherited elites. Some of them were republics and city-states that, that were free. And so you—and some of them were the agricultural areas of the South in which day workers who owned no land worked for the elite and people had very little autonomy and were very poor. So you have these sending areas that were not only not unified, they didn't speak the same language, they were very class divided, and they had no sense of Italianness. And you put your finger on it, Sicily had a very, being part of the Mediterranean culture for many thousands of years, had a very different sense of itself. So put everyone together, and there was intermarriage largely within one's region of origin. And so regions had their own banks, their own um, uh, mutual aid organizations, their own burial societies. And even today, we see some of the social clubs, like the Messina Social Club and others, being reinvigorated, not so much focusing on the region, but focusing on the idea that even this so-called Little Italy was divided by region and had its own social organizations. However, it over time, the two uh, institutions, the market and the nationality churches, broke down those boundaries. Someone once told me that her mother wouldn't let her marry a Sicilian, and who, to whom she, you know, thought she was engaged. But but after the war, people had were marrying within Catholicism and sometimes outside of Catholicism, as Americans, and didn't necessarily see themselves as part of a subgroup. What were some of the traditions that the immigrants brought with them that you can still see in practice today? They've—a lot of them have actually been reinvented, um, uh, and a lot of them have, have died out. My work in households took place in the 70s and with, with some continuous— um, continuous study after that. And many of the traditions of the mothers of the household were not being accepted by their kids. But the main traditions that needed to be reinforced when they came and are still being practiced are um, the, the, the traditions around Christmas, Easter, and First Communion. And 
all three of those have become very stylized and very similar, like Seven Fishes, and all of them were, but there are a lot of, um, the way in which the food system changed over time was not necessarily replacing American, uh, Italian foods with American foods, but by alternating consumptions of American meals and Italian meals. So the maintenance of the, of the gravy tradition, which is the red sauce that's been cooked for hours and hours and has become essentially a ragu in which everything has melted into it, is a, still a very important way to mark uh, special occasions or well, social occasions. It, it, Italians call it gravy and not spaghetti sauce? Yes, they call it gravy because it's, it's an essence. Now, interestingly, there's a, a piece in there about Temple University Rome, and when students get to Rome, they're taught how to make a simple red sauce uh, by the Roman faculty. And they, so in Rome, it's definitely not been gravy. It's never been gravy. But we find throughout the mid-Atlantic with Italian communities from Connecticut to Rhode Island to Massachusetts, it's called gravy, or at least the notion that gravy meals occur several times during the week and they're used for guests and special occasions is found in this area in which most of the Italian direct Italian migration took place. Now, what are some of the traditions, in, in particular the food? You write the chapter on the food in the book. Yeah. Uh, are uh, we think of as Italian food that are really American food that, that originated here? Well, they didn't originate here, but they were universalized here. Um, when there, when um, food production, commercialization, canning, and so on was developed early in the post-war era, it had started before the war, but that was a time of depression and poverty, and people weren't eating it, so um, weren't able to consume expensive food. But after the war, when advertising was sort of reaching its uh, a zenith, the madman days, um, Italian food manufacturers wanted to market to the Italian community. And so some of the industrialized food that we now look down on as non, as over-preserved and not from scratch, uh, was the was made by these mass producers, um, like Chef Boyardee. Was he was a, a real person. You he's say. a real person, <laughs> and he had he he created canned ravioli, canned spaghetti for an Italian market. Of course, the Italian market wasn't interested because they were going to make their gravy from scratch, but the rest of the country became familiar with Italian food. A lot of the tomato sauces became uh, produced, mass-produced. At that time, and Italian women did buy that, particularly those that were produced by Italian companies. So it was in this attempt to market industrialized food, frozen food, frozen pizza, that a lot of Italian food made its way into American kitchens made its way into school lunches 
and became one of the most popular ethnic foods, one of the first and most popular ethnic foods for Americans who up till then, except for the wealthy who were interested in European cooking, ate a pretty bland American diet. And with the exception of what came through the Caribbean-U.S. trade, which was Creole food, which was spicy food, and elites in Philadelphia consumed it a lot, but ordinary people um, were not as happy. And that was a big marker between immigrants and Americans, because Americans eat bread that was too soft for Italians. It was too mushy. Uh, so texture and things were different. Um, so ironically, mass producers trying to produce for Italian consumers ended up dragging the U.S. population into a popularity, into the popularity of Italian food. But Italians still wanted to make their own style and, and find their own authenticity. That doesn't mean they didn't veer off and are now making all kinds of fusion dishes, mixing, um, trying to create new and interesting things, because that's a trend in food today, invention, creation, and to make tastes that never went together go together. If, if you buy a piece of pizza in Philadelphia, is it anything like a piece of pizza you would find in Italy? In some cases, yes. And some cases, no. There are, well, for example, Mark Vetri is both very interested in pizza as a, as a subject to study. And he has trained in Italy, and he knows all about it. Well, he both invents new forms, and he creates traditional forms. So it depends on where you go. And I think the millennial consumers also like newly invented forms and also like the old traditional. It also depends on where you go in Italy. You, Italy has its own pizza wars. It, um, uh, Naples claims the origin of pizza, vera pizza, pizza margarita. However, other people have been making stuffed breads, bread dough with things on it forever. The uh, first kind of pizza you found in Philadelphia was uh, tomato pies, which don't have, which have more tomatoes and either no or very little cheese. That mix of cheese and pizza, the things you put on top, California pizza with its ham and pineapple. You, obviously, Hawaiian pizza, but the first time I saw it was in California. So there's no limit now. And to go back to the earliest pizzas, say from the war, the, the earliest stuffed breads, you'd find something different from much of what we do. Nowadays, food is looked at as something that you analyze, you pull apart, and then you reinvent. So yes, it really does owe its origin to Italy, but what we do with it here is either condense it into one form 
a la the frozen pizza in the supermarket or invent and create fads and so on. Is, is the cheesesteak something that came from Italy or is that a, a Philly thing? Well, it's when men started to work outside the home and not go home for lunch that portable food became invented. It's, um, it's a Philly thing. It really, whereas the hoagie, under many names, is also a lunch food for men take outside the home originally, with many origin stories. Um, the cheesesteak also does come from Philly, the way the meat is shaved, the way the cheese is melted. Uh, it, but every store, every corner store, made it differently. And so it once it was made, it spread. And I began, when I did field work in Colombia, once there was a, there had been a lot of Colombians who'd come to the U.S., lived here for a while, and then went back to Colombia when um, the, 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 um, the violence was over, um, and they were opening cheesesteak uh, drive throughs So now you do find cheesesteaks all over the world, but they originally all did come from Philadelphia. I saw a, uh, a Philly cheesesteak shop in Lithuania one time. Oh, absolutely. Well, there's a big Colombian community in Queens. I really think that Colombians have been taking it with them. What are some of the other traditions that are still carried on? Like, is there still a lot of home winemaking carried on by, by Italian immigrants? Well, it's interesting there, too. There, uh, there are immigrants. It depends on what you call an immigrant. The older generations of immigrants, by the time the war was ended and we were restricting migration, which we had been doing since the 20s, immigrants were—the older immigrants who had originally come were still making wine in their basements. But—and uh, people were making them for restaurants even during the um, prohibition, because they weren't selling it, they were giving it away. Uh, and that tradition was important. But by the end of the war, with the great expansion of the middle class, this didn't become a, um, a way of life. But soon, in the, after 1965, we began to have Italian immigration on a semi-large scale. Italians came to Philadelphia to go to school. They came to Philadelphia to work in the food industry. So you, you began to have a new group who considered uh, winemaking. But actually, most of them have been importing wine from Italy and trying to make the importance of Italian food in the Philadelphia paired with commercial imports of Italian wines, which are very good. So um, you don't have as much. But if, sure, occasionally you do find a few, few families keeping up the tradition. Another thing is, that's mentioned in the book is growing fig trees. Is that an Italian thing that was carried over to this country? Well. 
it's a Mediterranean thing, <laughs> you know, the Bible are full of fig trees. But yes, people recall fig trees in their in their gardens, in their front lots and back lots, and drying them for the winter. So, and then the Philadelphia his, uh, Horticultural Society, in several of its exhibits, well, it had an exhibit about um, seven or eight years ago of South Philly landscapes, and they had fig, a fig tree was very prominent in that exhibit. So I, I don't think there are lots of fig trees, and figs, you would see them because they usually have to be protected from insects, and they're wrapped at early, at some parts of the season. I don't think that's as, I think people buy their figs now. <laughs> well, uh, one of the characters who is mentioned in the book, who uh, is one of the most fascinating characters in all of history, Lorenzo de Ponte, makes his way to Philadelphia. For people who don't know, who was Lorenzo de Ponte? Well, Lorenzo de Ponte was a, 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 an intellectual, an, an Italian intellectual, who became a, was a university language teacher, taught Italian. And because in the 19th century, during the Grand Tour, Italian became a very important language to learn and a very important—to travel to Italy and to see the wonders of the classical world and the Renaissance world. And so people wanted to learn Italian. But at that time, universities did not hire faculty. They usually were independently wealthy and had an income of their own. But Lorenzo de Ponte really was making his way here. He actually came from a Jewish background. And he taught at Columbia, and he—no, he taught at Penn. But he had to recruit his students, and they were largely elite Philadelphians who wanted to learn Italian for their grand tour, and they would pay him tuition directly, much like the ancient universities. And so he, he left uh, Pennsylvania for Columbia, which gave him—Columbia University, which gave him a—, uh, a a bit of a salary, and then uh, his son came to Penn. Now, this brings to mind the fact that New York, all, all the way between New York and Washington, D.C., was an Italian-American elite community that knew each other, but didn't necessarily relate only to Philadelphia. And de Ponte, was active in New York and active in Philly and active in Baltimore, and he decided to become an opera impresario. And he's the person who introduced opera to, the, to Philadelphia. And he brought people here. He brought the singers here. Some of them settled here and trained American-born Italian singers, and he was instrumental in starting the big opera fed, which took over the United States in the 19th century. I mean, you can go out west and see opera halls. He also but, says in the book that he 
when he was in Italy, wrote the lyrics to three of Mozart's operas. Yes, he did. Pretty good thing to have on your resume. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was a Renaissance man, although he was a little later than the Renaissance, but he was a, um, a, 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 a uh, well-educated person. You also say in the book that Lorenzo de Ponte fled Venice to the Austro-Hungarian Empire to avoid charges of unpriestly behavior. Sounds Unpri like there's an interesting story there. Yes, there sounds like there is an interesting story. There's. Uh, well, while we're on the subject of opera, you write about a couple of uh, opera stars who were from Philadelphia. Uh, Mario Lanza is one. Yes, he he was a he was born in Philadelphia and bred here, along with a lot of pop singers. And he, he skirted both worlds, but he was um, remarkable, and he died very young. But there's a mural to him in South Philadelphia, which shows how important he, he was. It was a period of time when, when um, crooners and popular music was really exploding, you know, starting in the 20s. And so Barrio Lanza had possibilities of working in both fields. And uh, he, he went the opera route predominantly and is definitely one of the, the most important Italian-American sons of Philadelphia. You also mentioned Anna Maffo? Yes. She, too, became a nationally known and internationally known opera singer. Now, um, the, uh, oh, you also mentioned that, that uh, the Academy of Music in Philadelphia is fashioned after La Scala in uh, Milan. Yes, yes. And, and the picture of the... Uh, of the Academy is absolutely beautiful in the center of the article about music in Philly. Um, and you can see it. It's, it's gorgeous. And, and it's been refurbished once the Kimmel was built, and it looks better than it ever did. But it definitely patterned itself after uh, La Scala. And that is not unusual. There are lots of buildings in Philadelphia that pattern themselves on specific buildings in, in Italy. Um, you had asked me earlier about walking through Philadelphia and what you would see that was Italian. Well, the, um, the last chapter in the book, or next to the last chapter in the book, is by Ingrid Safon, the uh, architecture critic for the Inquirer. And she talks about three kinds of buildings, three kinds of architectural forms that were—that uh, that can be found in Philadelphia. Those that were sort of designed and created by Italians themselves, those that were general homages to Italian design and style, and those that just evoke a particular places in Italy. Um, so 
as one example, the Church of the Loretto, which is in southwest Philadelphia, was built by a local community, and it was built with very modern style. And she talks about that, and it's a relatively modern post-war church, and she talks about that as being an, a design and image that contemporary Italian-Americans designed. And she talks about the um, towers, research towers on Penn's campus, as be, designed by uh, Louis Kahn as being directly taken from some Roman buildings. And she talks about the Bridge of Sighs that used to be um, that is located between the two Lip Brothers, the Lip Brothers building and its warehouses to bring merchandise back and forth, but it was designed to look like the Venetian Bridge of Sighs. Um, she talks about the original Drexel building, which looks like a particular, um, a particular townhouse in Italy, a famous um, aristocrat's townhouse. She talks about the Rodef Shalom uh, synagogue on Broad and, and Fairmount as being a, uh, a, a replica of the, the great synagogue in Italy. And it was designed by an Italian craftsman, Dicenzo, who's got its fingerprints all over Philadelphia buildings. He did wonderful stained glass. He had a workshop. There's a lot about him in the book. He designed the mosaics for Road of Shalom, and he designed other—and um, he designed the glass windows as well. And there are pictures of all of these things in the book. So. So you have a lot of buildings that you can see, and she's arranged them with locations so that one could take a tour to see these things. Uh, you also have a picture in the book of the west facade of the Philadelphia Museum of Art that has a replica of the Fountain of Seahorses in Villa Borghese in Rome. It was presented by Benito Mussolini in honor of the sesquicentennial in 1926. So when when World War II came along, did, did the Italian immigrants have a hard time dealing with the issue of the U.S. versus Italy in the war? It's really interesting. There's a book by Stephen Luconi, who's a uh, Italian scholar, about South Philly and its politics. And he goes through the newspapers of the South Philadelphia community to find that the community was split, that there were a lot of people, as there were in the U.S. before World War II, who were supporters of uh, Mussolini, and uh, but not not usually the rank and file who weren't interested in some of whom were you know more interested in the labor movement, but some of them were not, and so you get a, a broad range of people who took. T different sides. And so you find the community is split. But during the war, there was such a strong American patriot—during the First World War, there was—and it's afterward where this Mussolini statue was given to us in 1926—there wasn't a shame about 
fascism and the fact that Italians had been on the other side. And during the Second World War, Italians were very active in pro-American patriotism. So they really were never uh, subject to more than a sort of general, maybe, suspicion, but no actions were taken by the U.S. government, like uh, like war against uh, some Germans on the East Coast and the Japanese. So, and the so and then El Duce was El Duce was uh, was deposed. So, um, it's a it's a very complicated story, but uh, it it. It didn't seem to produce the kind of polarization in the community that that at least was marked in historical writings. There's no movement to tear down that statue because Mussolini gave it to the U.S.? No. Well, I don't think most people knew that Mussolini gave it to mm -hmm. the U.S., probably. They may not have had as much celebration. I have no idea, though. That's just plain speculation. Well, on, on a similar note, uh, how is the Italian community dealing now with the issue of Christopher Columbus? And again, very mixed. And of course, uh, the louder voices are those who are defending him. It's, it's really an interesting issue because Columbus really was, and historians have noted this, was the symbol for them of how to gain status in the United States. Because when there was a lot of discrimination against Italian migrants early on, they, like the Eastern European people who came along with them, like the Greeks, were seen as Mediterranean people, lower on Hitler's scale, somewhat uh, besmirched and not quite white. And um, the war changed that. But because of that and the mafia stereotype, there was a feeling that Columbus balanced that view. And so Columbus and celebrating Columbus Day was a very pro-identity thing to do. And there are people who still want to um, still feel that way, and a lot of people who don't, you know, who are, you know, who are, whose identity and whose lives are, are much less um, fo focused on their Italian origins. So it's a mixed picture, but certainly there is a lot of concern in some institutions. One of the chapters you write, uh, that you wrote in this book, uh, is about the Rocky statue. C can you talk a little bit about what, why is it significant enough to have made it into this book, and what does the Rocky statue mean to Philadelphia and to Italians? Well, the reason it made it into this book is because of the picture on the back of the book, which had been what a Italian new journalist visitor to Philadelphia had written when he got back to Italy. So through his ideas, the, the markings of Philadelphia that represented the Italian legacy were the museums and the Rocky statue. 
And, you know, almost every European tourist goes to the Rocky statue. Almost every non-East Coast tourist goes to the Rocky statue. So for the outside world, it has become the sine qua non uh, icon of the city for a lot of reasons. It has a beautiful view on the, from the stairs, but mostly because Rocky symbolizes an underdog who rises. And so there are a lot of Italians who feel very strongly, just like they feel strongly about the Columbus, Columbus monuments. But they, uh, but there are many who who don't, who are little, you know, who don't feel that way. If you go through South Philadelphia, one of the markings you see in residential houses are lots and lots of eagles, paraphernalia. So that you find them in houses of all ethnic groups, but the Italians arrange them with an Italian flag. So uh, you can sort of see there are markings to show you who's who, and sports and uh, victories and so on are very, very important. So Rocky symbolizes the grid of the city and the elites who I mean, one of the sort of great features of the book, I think, is the fact that it does deal with this kind of tension between the the uh, between the uh, Renaissance and the classical world and the elite museums and institutions as representing Italy, and the other is the the food which. which both upscale and downscale, because some of the upscale foods take downscale products and make them fancy, like pizza. Um, they play with it as a form. So you get this various view from different people, and the same is true for the Rocky statue. It You can both embrace the Rocky statue and you can embrace the glorious uh, uh, cast rooms in the Philadelphia Academy of Fine Arts, which are museum uh, replicas, excellent museum replicas of classical statues. You can embrace the Rocky statue and embrace the um, bronze horses and bronze soldiers and bronze statues that Wanamaker bought to donate to the Penn Museum of Archaeology replicas that he bought in Naples and had shipped to the St. Louis World's Fair to display them and then gave them to the to the uh, museum at Penn, which was just beginning to develop its collections. So Rocky is just one of a piece of this bottom-up and top-down way of identifying with, thinking of, and consuming Italian heritage. We only have a couple of minutes left. I want to ask about a couple of other people in the book. One is Frank Rizzo. What did his career as a policeman and, and mayor mean to the Italian community? Again, one of the big emphasis of the book is the fact that the Italian community is not a monolith at all anymore. The pathways people took moving to the suburbs, moving into professional managerial class, becoming heads of corporations, becoming heads of large-scale food businesses, becoming teachers, becoming policemen, becoming uh, 
uh, incumbents of all walks of life. And living all over the metropolitan areas meant that their views are different. So for some people of a certain age and of certain experience, Rizzo's years are both a source of shame or a source of pride. For people born later, Rizzo, does, they, they probably don't know much about, about Rizzo. So it sort of depends on whose point of view you're looking at within the Italian community and what their life experience has been. You also have a chapter by Jeremy Good. Is he a relative? Yes, he's my grandson. <laughs> and he wrote on the South Philly musicians, including Al Martino, Jerry Blavitt, James Darren, Frankie Avalon, uh, and uh, Fabian Forte. Have quite an array of people from South Philly. Yes, it's, a, it's really was amazing. And they all operated independently of each other um, because some were caught up in the Hollywood uh, Gidget movies, the beach party movies. Some gained their fame a little earlier at, in local bars and then were signed by record companies. It's not like they all, while some of them pulled each other up, most, many of them just come out of the atmosphere of music that was important, pop music that was becoming very important in the pre-war and post-war era. And they played a huge role. So of this um, mural that has, I don't remember, eight people on it, seven have, well, m many of them have Italian either one, a single parent or both parents. Another, so. another character just uh, to mention at the end is Frank Gasparro, who designed the, the back of the Lincoln penny. Yes. And got his initials on there. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. This, can you see? You can see the initials? In yeah, the, it, yeah. Because when we were working with that picture, it was so, um, they had so, such a high rate of, pixelation that it was really hard to get a scale at which to print it where everything would show. <laughs> yeah, no, he, there's a local, lo, boy got a local job at the Mint and, and, and became this artist who designed the penny. Well, we are out of time. We've been speaking to, with Judith Good, and she is the author of this book, the editor of this book, and author of part of this book, The Italian Legacy in Philadelphia, History, Culture, People, and Ideas. Thank you very much. Thank you. And I must mention Andrea Canapari, with whom I worked, who was a major, uh, who supplied the pictures and the, most of the chapter writers and was really is really the sort of originator of the book. Enjoying this podcast? Visit PCNTV.com to find out how to support our mission. PCN is a 501c3 nonprofit television network. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. Full episodes of PA Books, as well as other PCN programs, are available to stream with the PCN app. Visit PCNTV.com or the App Store for details.